Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. Uh, they are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, Y-E-G, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, you know, go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. People of Brooklyn, please welcome the most famous Hari Kondabolu in the world, Hari Kondabolu! Creative Control with Vish Comic. Hari Kondabolu is a gifted comedian, incisive writer, hard-touring stand-up, and influential filmmaker based in Brooklyn, New York. Making a name for himself on the road and at comedy festivals over the past decade, 
Cundibolo has appeared on every major American late-night TV talk show, is a frequent guest on national public radio shows, and has hosted and guested on numerous podcasts. He has released acclaimed specials with Netflix and Comedy Central and three hilarious and thoughtful stand-up albums. His latest special and record is called Vacation Baby, which was released on April 18th, 2023, and is available to watch on YouTube for free via 800-pound gorilla and to hear on Kundabolu's Bandcamp page. To celebrate Vacation Baby's release and his North American tour dates that bring him to Toronto on June 29th, Hari and I reconnected for a nice conversation about things like uh, his status as a new father and its impact on his working life, fulfilling the expectations of Indian parents and the dietary importance of yogurt in Indian food, comedians who celebrate their cultural backgrounds without mocking them, but also the double standard that BIPOC creators often face when they attempt to discuss things that white creators aren't scrutinized for, the pros and cons of making art that deeply impacts the way other people think and act, his perspectives on his divisive but landmark documentary, The Problem with Apu, and his new friendship with The Simpsons voice actor, Hank Azaria, the most meaningful aspects of his work as a stand-up comedian, upcoming tour dates, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. Thank you so much for doing that. It means so much, and uh, it is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into this show. There's no other backers or anything like that, so if you like the show and want to see it uh, continue and want to support me financially, please consider doing so at patreon.com slash Control. Thank you so much. Plus, in-kind support from... Uh, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, all wonderful and fine independent businesses, by the way. This is episode 785 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Hari Kandabolu with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Hari. How you doing? It's good. Good to see you, Vish. It's uh, every time I have a project, I know I'm going to speak to you at some point, and a part of me wonders: Is that why I make things? Just so we can have these conversations periodically. You know, I feel the same about you. I think the only reason I do whatever I do is like, oh, Hari's going to have something. I better be ready. Uh, no, no, it's uh, it's nice. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate it, uh, man. It's oh, we always have a nice chat. I'm always yeah. looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah, how how are things uh, going there? Where in the world are you? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Things are things are fine, man. I mean, like uh, I'm a dad now, so clearly there's a lot going on that has nothing to do with my career. Uh, it has nothing to do with you know. There was a time where I lived and died off my thoughts and feelings, and I realized that they aren't as important as I thought they were. <laughs> uh, after the child was born, it's like, you know, those all are a second to the million other things this child requires. And the best part of it, selfishly, is like there is something really wonderful because I've tried to find 
ways for years to like minimize self. Isn't that like the goal of, of Buddhism, right? Is to get, and, yep. and all it required wasn't the meditation. It was just a child. And now the self is so small compared to the self is a conduit to make sure my kid is okay. Um, but so that is that is tied to vocational stuff. I don't want to get too heavy right away because I, I mm-hmm. totally agree with you. Uh, sorry, just so people understand, uh, how, how long have you been a father now? Two and a half years, going okay. on three. So here's the thing. Those of us who enter uh, what uh, our parents of Indian descent might think of as precarious vocational pursuits... Some, yeah. As the kids get older and you realize the financial implications of every single thing you do, I don't yeah. know about you, but my parents' voice is now louder in my head about, maybe you want to be a doctor, oh. maybe you should be a lawyer. And I'm like, why were they always like begging me to do this or insisting even the money? And so then I, I, have, I have two. They're 11 and I want to say... Uh, Eight. And I want to say... Sorry, it's a Norm Macdonald joke. In the, but, in the ballpark of uh, eight. <laughs> yeah, she, one of them's eight, one of them's going to be 12 soon. Now I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in the arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's crumbling. They're taking yes. away media from all the things. One, one I'm ready to sell out. That's one big epiphany I had. Like, I <laughs> never had the same inkling, and now I'm like, I will do what you need me to do. Yes. And One. Uh, two... If my child wants to get into the arts and particularly stand up, I will not be nice about it. Mm -hmm. This is not something I wish upon my child. And in some weird way, I feel like I want what my parents wanted for me for him. Like, I I go into something with stable income where you can have a family uh, younger and, you know, have more energy and don't do what I did. You're becoming your parents. We become our parents. and I think that, you know, honestly, like, it's almost, I have a joke in the special, like, do you realize how hard your grandparents had to work? <laughs> you know, like, don't waste this opportunity. The social like, safety net, the family social safety net. <laughs> I mean, and it's not like, you know, with their generation, they had this large immigrant community, right? Mm-hmm. So the safety net's even bigger than you actually think. Community comes in and yeah. something happens, the community makes sure you're okay. Yeah. They'll never let you forget that you were in peril. That will be brought up for generations. But like yeah. this generation, I won't have the same level of immigrant safety net. Like no. it goes down with me. No. You know. No, I I, I I have recognized my privilege now. I'm a I think I'm a bit older than you, Hari, and I, I've recognized my privilege in this you know, because I, I don't know about you, I, I hear it in your specials. By the way, mm. this new special is just brilliant. I think I've watched it three or Thank four you. times now. I love it so much. Just beautifully crafted. I want to get into that in a bit just because I think like a lot of uh, people who uh, make their living or or perfect their art even on stage, you were certainly among those impacted by this pandemic. And I want to talk about that in terms of your comedy because I, I pick up on someone who uh, maybe was a little pent up. And had a lot of stuff yeah. to say, and I and and it's yeah. just brilliant. I want to get to that. Where was I going with this though? Yeah, no, but the parents thing is is when you come from immigration, I guess I don't know how else to put it. My parents came here literally with nothing, and uh, I used to, and then I grew up in that culture clash of being in Canada, and 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 then going when I, when I was out in the world, I was in Canada, and when I came home, I was in India. That's how I used to feel. And mm. I was, I, did you ever resent that cultural clash yourself? Because I realize I was an ungrateful child in that regard, that these people sacrificed everything 
And I was like, ah, fuck off. I don't want to do all this shit. <laughs> Did you have kind any of that? Kind of. In certain, in certain ways. Yeah. In very specific ways. Because, you know, growing up in New York and just having the so many South Asians around me, like part of me was like, well, everyone's going through it. A lot of people are going, it's not as, you know. Yeah. But it's, the things that I was always kind of hung up about is like, I don't want to eat Indian food. Mm-hmm. Like, how come everyone gets to eat spaghetti? So I want spaghetti. Yeah. So my parents would make us, my mom would make a second meal for me and my brother that was like garbage American food. Yeah. Like, she's making this South Indian meal for her and my dad. And I'm like, no, the kids want SpaghettiOs. <laughs> so let's, let's give them so Chef Boyardee. Like, it was just kind of ridiculous kind of stuff. And then as I got older, my brother ended up enjoying eating South Indian food. And it was only I that had the garbage American meal as I got older, which is increasingly embarrassing more than I think about it. Is that still the more case for you? Me. You didn't grow to appreciate that? Did you develop your Indian palate? No, I, uh, I, I love Indian restaurants and I eat at Indian restaurants. And at home, I, I don't have the spice tolerance for South Indian cooking. Which is very embarrassing. Yeah, so you talk about Indian this cooking is very, very spicy, <laughs> and I talk about it in the special. But it's yeah. like you know, my mom also, I think, genetically doesn't have a great spice tolerance. Oh, okay. my father, and my brother do, so that's part of it. But I also just when you don't eat it enough and you don't love yogurt, like you can't, you gotta have, you gotta like yogurt because <laughs> that's your that's the safety net with South Indian food. Like your stomach's on fire, but we end with yogurt, and that's you know if you don't like yogurt, of course it's gonna be terrific. It's funny, um, we, I have a, uh, as a father, I've instituted several uh, weekly traditions now. One of them is movie yeah. night. Friday nights we have movie huh. night. And uh, it came up that uh, we were going to watch Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones and the Temple of huh. Doom. Yeah. And I have been avoiding that one. We have watched Raiders. It's important for them to see. We've watched Raiders a couple of times. Uh, these are young kids, so they, their memories, I don't even know if they're retaining everything. And my son... Uh, again, we just this past Friday night we watched uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which he claims is his favorite one. Uh, but I avoided Temple of Doom both because it's incredibly scary. I thought yeah. for children, but the Indian food scene, the dinner scene, yeah. uh, I have been traumatized for uh, most of my. Well, I was at the time. I'm I'm fine now. Everyone relax. I'm okay. But as a kid growing up and that being popular, that was frustrating. To uh, give them some context, we decided. A part of movie night is to order out. We order takeout. And for the first time in the rotation, Indian food. I said, you know what? You're going to be seeing some things, and they're not going to make a lot of sense. We never ate snakes and monkey brains, so we're going to get real Indian food. And we did, and it was delicious. I recommend yeah. this place where I live now in Edmonton, Alberta. I never got to tell you that. You I'm, moved to Edmonton. Man, I'm never going to see you. I know. It's frustrating. Have you ever played in Alberta? I was going to ask you whether you were going to be in Toronto, because I'm doing gigs in Toronto at the... End of uh, June, and I'm not going to see you. No, I know. It's weird. I always see you when we're in Toronto, and I, I feel badly about that. But uh, my wife's family is from Edmonton, uh, and uh, we got jobs that pay. I don't know if you know about this. It's hard to live uh, in most places. It's expensive. We can't uh, mm -hmm. move around. We had a family of four in a two-bedroom, bid on a dozen houses, always out in Guelph where I lived. I lived in Guelph, Ontario, about an hour outside of Toronto. And people from Toronto come in with their money and they outbid you by a hundred, like tens of thousands of dollars on a fixer-upper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucked. So we moved. Anyway, my point was I ordered the Indian food and my wife said, you know what we could have used? You didn't order any uh, raita. And I said, oh, yeah, I didn't order it because the heat was getting to everyone. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I just wanted to tie it back into yogurt. I, I've never <laughs> been a big yogurt fan. My mother, oh, it's yogurt? You want yogurt? You want right? You, and I was like, no, I don't. 
But because uh, I, have, you, as you get older, you realize that's that's how you survive Indian food. Yeah, it's yogurt. It's all based on yogurt. It is kind of strange. I, I all I'm all I'm getting at is. Obviously, I relate to your comedy. I sent your uh, special to my sister. I don't know that she's watched it yet. She said she'd get to it. But as an Indian kid, your work has always resonated uh, with me. And I just want to tell you that. I think you know this, right? I was looking at the the audience pans at your show at the Bell House, and the Indian folks come out. That's fair to say, right? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly – it's a certain type of Indian person. Like, I think it's, you know, and I think you understand what that means. It has to be somebody who politically on board isn't afraid of uh, the phrase white people, which I think a lot of South Asian, I think there is that sense of like fear of like taking a strong racialized identity or stance on racism publicly. Like there is the fear of what the penalty is. And I don't even think it's intentional, but I, I, the times I hear groans regarding race, it's usually very white crowds or very brown crowds if there's a mix of everybody it's fine yeah but there's something about that i've always noticed where you know if the crowd is mostly black or asian i don't hear like ooh or but when it's like brown people i that happens more often where there's a tendency of oh god who's around like can we say this like and that i don't get that with my the people that come to see me intentionally and know why they're there. And that's what that special was because they know what they're getting. And, yeah. you know, it's it's not going to be like Russell, you know, mm-hmm. certainly. It's like Russell has a certain like kind of inclusivity and a certain accessibility that I'm not going to have. It's not going to be like Hassan because Hassan's going to be more pop culture. He's going to talk about politics, but he's definitely and it's going to be clever, but it's it's not going to be mean. I'm going to be mean. And I'm going to be sharp and mean. And it's not to say unlikable, though some would argue that, but it's definitely going to be its own thing. And I feel like the people that come to see me, like who've been seeing me for a long time, they know what that is. What's the line between uh, expressing your pain as a comedian in terms of your cultural background? I mean, sorry, pain and uh, well, that's not the exact right. I think I think a lot of comedy is expressing pain by making light of your background and your upbringing and whatnot. You mentioned Russell Peters. Uh, I assume that's who you meant, not uh, Russell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't yeah, mean yeah, Russell Crowe. Yeah. Russell Crowe's uh, Indian no. stand-up bits are not that great. Uh, no, they they definitely they didn't have the lasting power he expected. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> we weren't entertained. Actually, I think is where I was going with that. My point was, uh, what's the line between sending up and and sort of therapeutically going through this? Uh, background that you've had and you know people in your fan base have yeah. but also mocking it I think uh, I, I always remember Aziz Ansari once saying I wasn't going to talk about certain things I wasn't going to do the accents I w- and that's what I you know I think part of the tension that you're talking about in terms of Indian people being dis- uh, uncomfortable with white uh, critique is for a lot of us I think we spent our most of our, uh, our childhood and teenage years trying to assimilate trying to fit right. in with white culture. And then as you get older, you're like, wait a minute, these people, not all of them, but this culture is responsible for so much bullshit. Now I'm angry at yes. them. So I spend like, oh, it, you, you know what I mean? I know. I mean, what you're saying is like, let me let me think it through because what you're saying is is uh, like the core of a lot of it. It's like this idea of white gaze, right? Yes. Spelled G-A-Z-E, not G-A-Y, <laughs> in case people are like, he hates white gay people. Um, but this idea of constantly worrying about what they view and the idea that the eye is always on you. And so, 
you know, Russell Peters' stuff, when I think I saw it in my, you know, when I was 18, 17, 18, 19, there was a, a range of feelings. First, it was the pride and excitement of a South Asian having their own, like, half-hour special. Even if it's Canada, it was like, that sounds incredibly insulting. What but the hell? Yes, even, Why did you just say that, even if Even it's though it was Canada, <laughs> even though it was the minor leagues, to still make it. <laughs> a lot of great comedy coming out of Canada, if I might say. Good history here. <laughs> but but the comedy now special wasn't as big a thing in right, the U.S., sure, sadly. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, seeing that was like, whoa, like, this is possible. That was the thing. The, the idea that he existed, like, you know. And the accents are incredible and funny. And it's speaking to us in a way that, like, you know, like the jokes we make when our parents got together for parties and it was a bunch of random, like, South Asian kids who only knew each other at these parties yeah. that their parents would go to. And we're making fun of our parents in the back room or whatever. Like, it felt like watching that in this beautiful way. Yeah. And then you start thinking, well, what are white people going to do if they see this? Mm. Is this what they're going to do with they like what they do with Apu, right? Like, is this going to be the next thing that taunts us? And all of a sudden, I see that, and I'm like, what does this mean? This is going to hurt us eventually, yeah. you know? Yeah. And now looking at like like the the bigger context with time and and being in it myself for 20 years, it's like one, you see why Russell was a pioneer because he was the first to break through, the first to show people that. There is commercial viability, which seems silly to say that he has to prove it for a whole group of people. But that's how racism works, right? That's how yeah. gra- groundbreaking works. Like, oh, this one can do it, so others can do it. You know, like the idea that it was even possible didn't seem like a thing. The fact that he through the internet it spread globally. The fact that he, if you look at those audiences that, yeah, especially uh, on those early specials, like they're brown people, they're they're South Asian, they're East Asian. Like, the audience he's playing, like, once it goes online, it's everybody. But it was those audiences he was playing to. Yeah. And those are the audiences that, like, lifted him around the world. So if you look at, look at him in that context, like, what he did, I mean, he's still, in so many ways, the biggest South Asian comic in the world. Yeah. Like, Aziz is obviously, you know, he you know TV star and some film and stuff. But, like, it's not the same. No. Globally, like, it's... It's Russell Peters. Like, he's the reason there are stand-up markets around the world because people saw him play and they started doing stand-up, whether in India and other places. Like, he was their guy. He was He's that kind of figure. So looking at it now, I view it a lot differently than I did when I was 22, 23. Um, <laughs> I also think that this there's been this fear of if I talk about my parents, if I talk about my background – immediately I'm going to be pigeonholed. I'm going to be boxed in, yeah, right? Yeah. And I definitely felt that. And I avoided talking about my family for a very long time for that fear. And and then all of a sudden, you know, because I, I hear the white comics say, of course, that's what he's going to do. Yes. Of course, that's what he's going to do. Even if I didn't use an accent, it was like, of course, that's his angle. And then after a while, you realize all these white people are talking about their white parents. That's a, a lot of... Because yeah. they're their parents. Yeah. You know, like you start to realize they're they're doing impressions of their parents and they're talking about it's it's the idea that, oh, they can't do what we're doing. And because our parents have this because they can't use it's that idea of we can't do they can say, why can't we sit? So we have that. And it's like, oh, we're being told we can't use it because of it. we're not doing anything wrong. We're talking about our parents. Yeah. And then in terms of accents, it's like there's also a difference between an accent. And this is a trickier line that I'm certainly, you know, my my feelings have evolved in. If you do an accent well, if it's done with accuracy, if it's important to the character, it feels unfair 
that you can do your Jewish mother, you can do your Irish father, you can do all this stuff, but you can't do your Indian parents. If it's done well, if it's done in a way, like, you know, there's a difference between, oh, yeah, this person was educated in Bombay boarding schools versus, like, that's a poo. Like, there is a big difference. There is no single Indian accent. Yeah, there's, And I think... Uh, I'm a, I'm I'm of both minds of this. I once did a TV audition in the last ten years, and they asked me to do a monologue. So I told this. I wanted to tell the story about my dad on a recent trip to India. Went uh, and got us for some reason. I didn't ask for this. Matching knockoff Umbro tracksuits. Hilarious. Amazing. So I I, I wrote up the story and, and the best I could, just trying to imagine my father even. In the bazaar, thinking this was a great idea, and uh, I presented it. And the, when I was done the audition, the, the one of the producers was like, "That was great, but when you tell your dad's side of it, why not do the accent?" And I was like, instantly offended by this. Um, maybe I had Aziz's voice in my head because I grew up doing the accent. I was playing the, of I was we, playing we the did. room, playing the room in grade seven and eight. I knew that if I othered myself, they couldn't yes. do it to me. I was basically Eminem in Eight Mile. Most of my childhood, I'll get, I'll do it to myself. They can't. Do I'll it. do it first. And yeah, then, but and the thing you realize is, you know what? They still do it. They still do it. it. Doesn't I actually know. cut them off. Yeah, they do. But my mother, when she talks to me and says strange things, there is a humor in the lilt of the accent. Yes, like the way she delivers a line. Like when I was a kid, I needed apparently I needed glass. I didn't get glasses till grade nine, and when I went yeah. to the and I went once when I was four years old. And the optometrist in grade nine said, what the hell? You should have been wearing glasses since you were born. Your one eye is so messed up. And when I said to my parents, I would say to my parents, I can't see the chalkboard. I'm having trouble. Can I get, can we go to the eye doctor? And my mother would say, and I won't do the accent now, but my mother would say, Vishal, we don't wear glasses. Like as a people, as a family, we don't wear glasses. She thought it. It suggested diminished health or something. Like I'm trying to read you don't, it as a people. <laughs> you mean just in the family? Because Gandhi would argue <laughs> That's otherwise. Right, what I thought. One of the most popular round glasses wearers of all time. Gandhi yeah, wore yeah. glasses. We don't wear glasses. But when she uh, he just wore them for style. It was a look. It was <laughs> the right. image with the loom. It looks good. Uh, but my yeah. point is, the way she said it to me, and the way I've told the story, I've taken the accent away. It does feel a little less funny. Because there's something about the attitude of the delivery. Do you know where I'm coming from? Now I'm conflicted. Yeah. I don't want to delve too hard into this, but the thing is, you tell so many amazing stories about your parents. Like the segment in the new special about your mother suggesting names for your child is hilarious. It's amazing. And I, I, you show a little bit of discipline by not, you know, exactly mocking your there's, parents. I mean, there, I sense? use a very you, slight, like there's a slight, because pronunciation wise, you don't want to like completely, you know. Yes. You know, yeah. I got to try to get the acts. The, you need, the voice requires a certain way to, certain sounds. Yes. Right, if you're going to get the name right. Yeah. Like, my name is Hari, you know. Yeah. I could use, what am I supposed to say? Like, so I'm Hari. No, I'm Hari. Even I'm not completely <laughs> yes. saying it the way they would say it in India, obviously, just because of my voice. But I think it's, to me, if the joke is strong enough, and it doesn't need it, you know, what's yeah. the point? And if it does need it, then it wasn't a good joke, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. if if what the accent adds is, like, these people sound ridiculous or they're not as smart as I am, you know, then it's like, yeah. what is the benefit of it? But it's tricky because, like, when you do the accent well, it it takes you right there. Exactly, yeah. But it takes you right there 
is a different thing for someone who grew up with brown people and someone who didn't. Yes. Like when I hear it and it's done well, it takes me right to the memories we were talking about of like our parents and us making fun of them and stuff. But for other people, it takes them back. Oh, the guy at the store or the guy that, you know, was a friend of a friend's father or some ridiculous thing that isn't really part of your regular experience. And that's when it becomes tricky. Like, is that accent serving the purpose of realism in your story or does it end up becoming uh, another one of a handful of racist tropes that someone who's inexperienced with our people can now draw from? Yes. And it's unfair. It's an unfair thing. And that's another thing that it's taken me a while to get to. Like, it's unfair that we have to make those choices creatively because I feel like as an artist, like, you should have the option. I know comics who do those accents extremely well. And when they put it up on stage, I have to think to myself, like, man, that's an incredibly well done performance. And I'm nervous about what that could do. Yeah. Like, how people are going to take it. And at this, and at the same time, I've seen people do it, and I'm like, "That's a terrible impression. No, no way your your mom sounds yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way your mom sounds like Hank Azaria's impression. Like, there's no way. Yep. Do you know what yep, I mean? A hundred percent. And uh, I- it, it it just doesn't like that's because my, my impression is basically an impression of Hank's impression. You know, like I don't know, I don't do a good Indian accent. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, you know? no, it's a fair point, and I, I'm I'm glad you invoked Hank Azaria because um, for those of us who followed your comp, I don't know. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to let it sit here because I don't know if you think of your career as uh, having a kind of uh, before the problem with that poo trajectory and an after a post. I do absolutely okay, and and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and it's it's frustrating, but it's I, the reality is like what my career was before and after is completely different, and for better or worse. Yeah, let's get into that because I think those of us who followed your comedy before that documentary came out, which by the way. I don't know if you know this, Harry, but I love that documentary. I gave it a very nice review Thank in you. a Canadian magazine, and I uh, I wrote about it in a more personal way uh, than I would normally. But I mean, maybe that's obvious to those of uh, who are, have heard us talking about our upbringings. But um, prior to the documentary coming out, I think I I thought of you as a very outspoken comedian. We you would delve into the same stuff we've just been talking about in terms of uh, racism and also cultural clashes, collisions, these sorts of things. Um, but let's yeah. talk about that before and after. How would you describe both to some extent? Uh, what has happened to you as someone who I think is now almost predominantly known uh, for speaking out and for talking about this kind of thing? Um, sorry, this has now become a leading question. Can you talk about this a little bit? No, no. I mean, before that, I, I, you know, I certainly was, was less known as a figure. I, I, I did fine on the comedy in the comedy world, but I wasn't as I got bigger because of the. I'm yawning while talking about this because I'm bored of the topic. Of I'm sorry, um, I don't mean to okay. bore you. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just that you know, it's and talking to you about it also is a very different experience than talking to somebody else. Just because we also have, as a brown person, shared history and who who yes, you know, I can actually talk about it with depth. So it's it's different. Yeah, but I think. Uh, for those of you, who, for people who knew my stand-up, one, doing the documentary wouldn't have been a surprise that I would have done this thing like that. And two, it's a much softer documentary than what my stand-up historically has been. My yeah. stand-up is a little more aggressive and brutal than what that doc- that documentary was. That's a pop culture documentary about like 
you know, a cartoon character, but it doesn't delve into the depth of racism like I normally would want to. And, like, it certainly wasn't the documentary I intended to make either. You know, I wanted to make something where I wasn't a central figure in it. I didn't want to center myself in it. I wanted it to be about, you know, the history of that accent, but also the history of, like, minstrelsy in this country and the hazing process that you know, people of color have to, to go through. So, it, and and I wanted it to be like a bunch of interviews cut together with me maybe being a voiceover. But once you sell it to like a cable network, like, you know, that's not going to work. Yeah, I got I got 40 minutes to, to an hour to make something and the programs around me are prank and magic shows. So, right. you know, it's a different kind of vehicle. You're not, you're not making just an art documentary. And so, you know, it certainly got watered down for what I wanted to do, mm. um, though it was a lot, you know, it still was for me, it was it was an interesting process of creating a thing, but it certainly wasn't like interesting in terms of the 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 pure content. You know, most of the stuff I knew already, it's not complicated. The idea of having having to prove to people that this character is racist, has has racial overtones is obvious. Like the, the idea that I had to even prove that in a film is almost like insulting in a way you know if you actually grew up with it it's like why does this need to be proven i mean literally listen to the character you do do i have to explain why this is weird you know the character who ran and i don't even know if the character is still i know they revoiced people but he ran a convenience they haven't used it they haven't used him again since really just to avoid trouble yeah and i want to get into that like you sorry i appreciate that this might be boring but it's interesting, or rather tiresome, is maybe a better word for you. Um, yeah. However, you did something that altered the culture and a cultural institution. And to me, having not talked to you about that, <laughs> it's yeah. quite no, fascinating. No, no, we should talk about yeah. I mean, what's interesting is I don't think I understood how much impact it made until you know me and Hank spoke. And that, that's been kind of great. Like I've become friends with Hank Azaria, and, and, and the work he's done on himself post the film is kind of extraordinary. And yeah. In addition to publicly speaking out about how, like, I don't think I should voice his character, South Asian should be in the room, he's done a lot of work on himself with regards to, like, anti-racist trainings and, like, being a white ally and actually speaking to groups of white people and trying to explain how, you know, representation works and how the history of race in this country has worked. And, you know, he's been working with different organizations. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. And he's actually gotten more out of the film than I wish, you know, than a lot of people have. It's, it's weird that he's the one who, who's gotten the most out of it. Cause that wasn't the intention, but you know, they kind of, the Simpsons kind of didn't really do anything with the character and it just kind of hid from it. And it's frustrating. Cause I ended, I end up in the situation where people are just telling me I killed a character. You, you want to get rid of this character. I'm like, I don't give a shit about this character. Like yeah. the story, like what, like nobody really watches The Simpsons anyways, what I thought until I realized like, oh, around the world they still do because I get death threats in Spanish and Portuguese now. Oh, man. But like, but you know, like I, I think it's really cool to see like the journey he's taken and the fact that this thing has this bigger life. Sorry, I lost track of where you were. Well, I'm sorry. I, I think you? I was asking about the fact that you had a cultural impact as well. So oh, the initial right. So resp- talking, to, yeah. talking to Hank about it, you know, Hank has told me like, you know, like Carl, the character Carl, like all the minority characters in The Simpsons are now voiced by people of color. Right. They make Carl Carlson's background that he was the adopted son of Scandinavians and mm. they, they made him more interesting. They've built these backstories and he's like... You know, all those things have happened because of your documentary. 
like all these new lanes that have never been opened have been opened because of your documentary because they were forced to and he's saying that these are like incredibly good things the fact that you know the, the, all these actors have gotten work that deserve to get work to begin with is because of your documentary and you know i think hearing it from him and how it's impacted even that show you know that that feels good certainly it's not the intent the intent was really to talk about this as more of an academic thing you know it became an activisty kind of thing which wasn't the point of it it was more of a is like an interesting phenomenon and also discussing during these changing times where we have so many more brown people this is where we came from this is what the root is but i guess it had a lot more impact than i ever imagined what about your impressions of each other you and hank hank in a recent conversation that was shared i think someone uh got you two together to have a chat about this and he suggested yes and he suggested Hank suggested, well, I thought you were kind of a gotcha journalist, a gotcha comedian. I didn't want to take part in it. He's since evolved. And I wonder if um, your impression of, and you've just expressed maybe, the thing is, it was called the problem with Apu. The problem. And that I appreciate what you're saying about how you didn't expect anything to change. But usually when someone identifies a problem, they're hoping that it can be resolved or solved. Um, and the initial yeah. response from the Simpsons camp, I can't recall what Hank said in the early days. Actually, it might be part of your film. Um, but they were like, basically, we're not, this is bullshit. They mocked you on the yeah. show with a scene. But now you're saying they have evolved over time. Do you have any perspective on... The denial, the anger that they expressed in the early days, not Hank necessarily, but the fact that they did come around and that is connected to your movie. Come on, man. Like, I feel like <laughs> like you started something, whether you like yeah. it or not, you know, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, it's sure, man, but like, <laughs> I got to do all this shit. So <laughs> some white people change a character or i gotta do all this shit so white people hire people of color like it just seems like it's just it's just annoying i have to do all this shit so people understand a clearly racist character is racist like you know it's it's it wasn't the intention first of all but secondly it's like it's annoying like i'm I'm like i'm as proud as i am of that it's like you know in x number of years this is all gonna feel absurd you know, to more people because it's like, really, that's not obvious to people. I, he had to make a thing, but but like, it, but but I think a lot of art does this. When you talk, when I, as you know, Harry, I talk to lots of musicians who write their own songs, and some of yeah. them will, in an artful way, cover a socio cultural or socio political topic in a song. Yeah, and uh, when yes. I talk to them in the moment, they'll say, and I'll say, like, you know, do you think? I was just uh, dealing with this with a, a fellow named Joe Casey. He plays in a band called Proto Martyr. It's a punk band from Detroit, and he writes beautiful, smart lyrics. And but it's it's subtle. Like I, I think I know what's going on. And Joe's been very forthcoming with me on this show, so we delve into stuff. And I go, "Aha! That is kind of what you were getting at." Or, "Oh, I'm surprised by that, but that that was your intention." Do you think this song or this album might impact the world? And of course, he's not a pretentious asshole. So he says, no, it's just a song. I'm doing my best. But it's got me talking and thinking. And it's got his fan base talking and thinking. And over the course of history, people will put something in a play or a movie or a song. And it may be mocked. It may be ridiculed. But then it's a pattern of behavior where like five, six years later, someone's like, you know that fucking movie? 
that came out about the problem with Apu, I think it's right. And, and it's just incremental change. I don't even have a point here. I'm just saying, I appreciate you saying it's annoying. I want to say on behalf of myself and other people who I think uh, you were maybe aiming the movie at, Indians who went through this shit. Thank you. Sure. And I think... It, I, well, I appreciate that. I think it worked. I, I Whatever your... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that was your intention, but I think it's actually talking about these things sometimes does happen. It does work. Does that make sense? I, I get that, but let's... Let me try to think of an example. Like, let's say David Johansson... I mean, this might be the case to a lot of people, is just Buster Poindexter to people. Yes, he's not in the New York Dolls. Yeah, yeah. Not in New York Dolls, not all the other things he does. He's just that guy with the hot, like, mm-hmm. what is it? Hot, hot, hot or whatever, right? Hot, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that that was a fun side project he made, but I don't think he assumed it was going to be this thing, right? Yes, yeah. And so, just a lot of people, that's who he is. And at some point, I you see. deal with it, you come to terms with it. But you know that, like, the depth of his work, it doesn't, that can't even touch what he's, you know what I mean? And that's huh. probably true with a million, like, uh, you know, I remember reading an interview, I think it was with one of the guys from um, Fountains of Wayne, uh, for, it, not Adam, after Adam Schlesinger passed, uh, it oh, was, yeah. uh, I so feel bad blanking on the, uh, uh, the other singer's name, but he, he was talking about how, you know, there was a discussion when they made Stacy's mom, Mm-hmm. They're like, this thing is going to go out and it's going to be a thing and we're going to be known for that. And all the other stuff we did, no one's going to know. No one's going to care about that's going to be our defining thing. And we that's a thing we just have to come to terms with. Yeah, and yeah. it kind of feels like that. Like, I didn't think this was the difference is I don't think I knew this was going to be the defining thing. I knew it was going to make some impact because no one's ever really criticized The Simpsons. I knew it would be part of some conversation. I didn't know how that conversation was going to look, how the, the you know, I, I more than anything, the thing I learned was how the Internet truly works and how yeah. conversations work and how you don't need to see a film to make a headline. Like all this stuff is that's what I learned more than anything else from this process. It was the after the film. But you make all this other work and the work you like the stuff I am writing now is about the role capitalism plays in you know, kind of the conversation we we're having earlier. What role does capitalism play in the art you construct? Like as a father, like how do yeah. I view art now compared to before? Or yeah. how do and how does kind of money play into our values, whether it's a prison industrial complex or you know, whether it's something like Urban Outfitters being this conduit to, you know, of a right wing billionaire that all of a sudden has this money that's going to anti left wing causes and we're all buying our skinny jeans there. Like it's it's the it's the use of, of money in a quote unquote democratic system and what that leads to and how, how our values are corrupted. That's the shit I find interesting. The idea of this accent is racist, this character is racist. I found that interesting when I was 16 and I talked Mm -hmm. about it in stand up and I did a short film about it in 2009 when I was not 2009, 2006, Uh when I was 22, 23 years old called Minoj. It was a 12 minute short film that covered the topic as thoughtfully and artistically as it should have been covered. It did it in 12 minutes and, you know, it was a lot more subtle it was a lot funnier. It was a lot more, to me, like just joke, like laughs per minute and just the art of it. It was a really funny 12-minute mockumentary that did the job. Mm. That's where the conversation for me creatively ended. Mm. 
like honestly, like after that point, after 2006, all this other stuff is the unfortunate result of we didn't exist to the mainstream popular culture until 15 years ago. So there's all this catch up. And so the things I truly wanted to do, I couldn't do back then. Hmm. So, okay, I did this piece on Kamau Bell's show because, you know, no one's ever covered it. And so I did it. And after I did it, Aziz did a, his own version of that on his show. And that became a, a thing. And uh, and then I did this documentary because it's like, well, people seem to be interested. Let's dig deeper into it. And I can talk, you know, for me, the thing I found more interesting is to talk about how there's a lot of people that f- share this idea. Yeah. Uh, that it, w- it it affected them. And also to talk about such a threat. Like, honestly, I wanted to talk about the Apu trilogy. I wanted to talk about the rich history of that filmmaker and of Bengali cinema and how like there's something deeper than this stupid cartoon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to me, like the idea that I'm 40 and still talking about this bullshit, you know, it's frustrating yeah. when it's like the, my creative goals are so much bigger than what I wanted at 16 and what I thought about at 16 and the things I care about now are so much bigger than that stupid show. I think so. and, You're, you seem to be lamenting the hit single. If if that makes any sense, that, I mean, and that's and that in a way, yeah. I mean, it, it's and on one hand, I'm grateful because I know it has impacted a lot of people. Yeah. I know that it's in curriculums in colleges and high schools. I know that it spurred a lot of great conversations. I see the work Hank's doing, and I'm, you know, part of the conversation I had with Hank in private, but also in, on um, Code Switch was like. I appreciate the work you're doing and it feels good to know that I contributed to that. And at the same time, I was frustrated that when you were doing interviews talking about how you've reconsidered all this stuff, you never mentioned me in the documentary. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I took the bullshit for it. I got the death threats. I had the extra security it shows, but you got to be the white guy that learned something. But you didn't say where you learned it, which is for me was you know, initially I've been like, well, it's part of a greater movement. And it's, but then, you know, after a while, it's like, it's aggravating. It's like, no, I'm a professional whose career is affected by it yeah. for better or worse. And I'm a person of color who, as much as I'm getting props for talking about this shit, you know, people of color talking about race and affecting people's businesses, which is what The Simpsons is. It's a business. Yeah. Doesn't always feel good for other executives and people with money. Is he going to cause trouble again? Is he going to affect another one of my businesses? The Simpsons isn't just art. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's all over the world with with dolls they sell, dolls that are sold out of context of the show with an Indian accent and these characters. Like It's a multi-billion dollar business. So when you're fucking with people's money, there's going to be other people that don't want to work with you as a result. So... You know, like at the end of the day, am I grateful for what it's achieved? Sure. Am I frustrated? Absolutely. But I also know careers are long. I have a lot more to give and you just keep working. That's a long answer, Vish. No, no, that's really it's an appropriate one. Earlier I thanked you, but I also now want to express my um, sorrow that putting I, – I, I, I don't I'm, – I'm happy that you uh, took a moment, at least a moment, to talk about the experiential impact of one putting themselves out there. So I just want to say thank you and sorry that you're going through any of this. It sounds like it's impacted you on multiple levels. And- it, it's it's frustrating. I mean, I'm coming to terms with it more. And, and you know, Vish, you saw it like you, as somebody who saw my career before that point and the stuff I was working on, 
I don't, I, maybe you see it differently, but this didn't seem like the trajectory for me. Like, you, to talk about this cartoon character becoming this all-encompassing thing. Like, the stuff I talked about, certainly identity was a yeah. major part of it. But, like, I was, you know, those first couple of records I put out, like, it, that wasn't the center of it. Like, that Bobby Jindal thing that I did in the second round, that certainly was not about identity alone. It was about this bigger idea. And if I was talking about identity, it was... It was in this larger political context, or I was talking about colonialism, and I was talking about, you know, that that Jonathan Swift healthcare joke about eating rich people. Like that's the shit I like, you know, an eight minute joke about Andy Warhol that, like, you know, you know, eat, like, it just basically runs into itself at the end. Like that's the kind of stuff, you know, that I'm interested in. Like I, I like. The, the the artists I'm uh, you know in awe of are like you know Paul Mooney and Pryor and Carlin and Stuart Lee who's both in terms of how he writes what he writes like these are the big influences and you you said it yourself yeah, your your comedy was sharper and more pointed than the documentary and I mean that comes it's a fucking uh, cartoon it's I, about a cartoon but Vacation you know? Baby has the same tone i will say that and i again I, in the time we have left i want to talk a bit more about uh that in a, in a moment but i do want to say one thing uh for those who haven't seen it yet hank azaria has appeared in the trailer for the new comedy special which is nice uh yes. and and uh and you did that podcast uh i believe together recently so you were saying earlier you wish he'd actually been more outspoken on your behalf on some level to be like yeah you know what all this growth really emanates from me actually thinking about what this fellow was saying. Who it, it was a cosign I probably needed very badly when I was getting a bunch of shit. Has it helped? You know, has it helped since uh, the trailer and his other the, the podcast? I mean, at this point, it's you know the the trickle of hate I get every week is not going to stop. You know, but during the, during the the big rush of it, it would have been useful. You know, but in this day you know, and age, I, he's probably getting it now. For even speaking on your behalf, you know? yeah, he yeah. he's getting the like sold out cuck, yeah. same stuff. You know, he's getting the other side of it, yeah. like the, the modern version of race trader, right? Yeah. So I, I, you know, I I like Hank a lot, and I respect Hank a lot, and I think the journey that he's gone on, the fact that he's willing to back it with actual work, you know, like. It does mean a lot. And I think I went into meeting him with a great deal of cynicism, mm. a little bit of hope, but cynicism. And I've left it with fr- with a friend. And I see yeah. him as yeah. he as somebody who actually, like, he means it. Yeah. And he's learned a lot. And he gives a shit. And he's still learning. Yeah. And he's still, you know. And, and I think also talking to him about him being somebody in recovery, as someone who's, you know, dealt with substance abuse yeah. and is, is in AA and... And how he sees this process of learning about race and educating as part of that larger process of atonement and about growth and apology is really beautiful, actually, to kind of see that lens applied to race. Um, The problem with that show, if I may be on the accent, is, and I don't know if he would have seen it this way, is that basically every single character is a little bit dumb, if not extremely dumb. So every other character Hank plays, whether it's Moe or... The, the the myriad of them they're all dumb so i just wonder yeah. they're being ridiculed for their idiocy that show you know sorry if you think about where we're at as a culture and how we process information and who we take seriously 
a good chunk of us, one of our idols growing up was Homer Simpson, an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we were yeah, watching yeah. the Simpsons movie on that aforementioned movie night, and my son picked it. He'd seen it before, but it, at this age, now he's a bit older, he's like, everything happened because of Homer. Like, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but he causes, like, an environmental no. disaster, and it's all because of him. And 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 he somehow there's always this moralistic, like, he makes up for it, yeah, but yeah. it's like, no. My son was like, this is this guy's dumb. He fucking ruined the planet. I mean, he didn't swear. He ruined the planet. So I guess what I'm saying but is... I, I like that about him because he's... Repre- I, I, to me, he's like, he's the average American, right? He's the one that's like completely self-absorbed <laughs> but, or an, an, like... An, I, lo- I love that. And, and the thing is with, with Homer, like people say, well, doesn't that parody the average white person i'm like no it parodies the average american that's the that's the thing like he's allowed to be with with apu we don't get that he's not like this is representing the average person that works in retail that's not the take we're getting yeah, but you know me- we're getting this very narrow swath we've had a weird wake-up call about media literacy with trump like uh yeah. and and reality tv like the people who are famous and idolized are generally vapid and dumb and yeah. I'm all I'm saying is, and I, now I'm going to get hate mail. Growing up, Homer was like a benchmark of how to behave socially, to play dumb. Did you think that? I never thought. I that. didn't. I, I'm just saying. I do think people related to the fact that he wasn't smart, and you right, could get right, away right. with that. That's there was a charm to his his idiocy, and it permeated everyone's like. How many of us? I don't know about you. We all went around being like, don't. Like, just like, uh, you know. Well, right. And Lisa wasn't considered a likable character no, in contrast the, no, to our. Exactly. Right. And she was the supposedly the sort of moral, intellectual center of the show. But frequently her show, her episodes were kind of a drag. Even for me, I yeah. believed everything Lisa was saying. But I'm like, oh, no, yeah, it's yeah, a Lisa. Yeah. Oh, no, this isn't going to be as fun. Huh. That's why it annoyed me when the Simpsons used Lisa as a way to insult what I was saying. That was really bad. I'm like, fucking yeah. Lisa would agree. If you were, honestly, it would have been better if Lisa saw my point of view and then Homer or another character like insulted her. That to me Lisa makes Lisa and Marge. Marge is, would be willing to either would be would have been willing to listen, but then wanted to avoid trouble. But Lisa would have just said it. It doesn't make sense that Lisa would have done that. And, 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 Except and I say this as a purposeful. fan of the show. Yeah. No, I think it was purposeful. It doubled the mockery that the two most empathetic and likable characters. Yes. In theory. In theory. Uh, in theory. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And also, I, I, I just, is a fucking, if you take, if, if you, which was something I think I had to do to be able to watch the show. If you take that aspect of how the accent's used, how that's a base for mockery and how that is added onto the jokes... The joke, he's a, he's a fucking good character. He's one of the more yes. thoughtful. Once you take the conniving immigrant aspect, which was the base of the character early on and still kind of was there out of it, yeah. like smart, deliberate, had to deal with Homer being an idiot like everyone else did and was like, you know, surrounded by people that weren't as bright and thoughtful and hardworking as he was. Like there's a lot there. And that clearly Sp- I spiritual, sp- spiritual, but not dogmatic like Ned. Yes. Like he, yeah. but it almost, they had to grow that character from the manure they started with. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like they, yep. they, it almost felt like they had to compensate for what they, what he was to make him something greater to almost cover up for what he, he was. And, you know, at a certain point you can only do so much because, you know, and it's also kind of why I feel bummed they waste, like, 
you could still build with that character. You can build with his yeah. kids. You could, there's a lot to to do if you either get another voice actor or just change his backstory. He's a cartoon. None of them age. Like you can do anything you want. They kind of took their ball and went home. We're just not going to have him on at all. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's, it's, it's kind of like come as a it's a hell of an artistic challenge, and also uh, they're probably like I don't want to touch it. I don't want to deal with stuff. That's the stuff you're supposed to touch. The stuff yeah. where you you feel like you're going to get a hit for it or hate for it. That's the stuff yeah. you're supposed to touch. That's where the innovative, scary stuff is. That's the stuff that's good. When I was watching The Simpsons and Apu was on, and say it was an episode where uh, Ganesh was depicted. Yeah. My parents were in the room. They were like, oh, look at that. Like, they were actually vaguely proud yeah, yeah. that anything was being mentioned. That's an immigrant pain, self-consciousness thing. Like, we are being... It didn't occur to them that it was a mockery. Oh, in I my was household. too. You kidding me? They know yeah. Ganesha yeah. exists. The idea yeah. that Homer's offering him a peanut was secondary to the fact he exists. Yes, and and it would be brought up at school the next day, right? Uh, for me, you know. So, anyway, we have really delved into something I wasn't planning to spend too much time on. I, I want to thank you for your patience with it. I hope we had a good discussion about that. Always, be sure. uh, vacation, baby. I was. I started off saying. Uh, it's genius comedy. It's a genius stand-up to me. The callbacks, the structure. I said earlier that I, I imagine you were a little pent up from being off stage. Was that the case for you? Were you like, I assume you did a lot of road work to get to the special, but were you pent up as a stand-up not being able to hit the road? Yes. Yes. And yeah. also I wanted to get something out. Like I felt that so much time had passed since that Netflix special and the pandemic also meant I wasn't on stage for two plus years. And I had an hour of material plus that was in the bank that I wanted to put out and I couldn't put it out because it didn't make sense because I had this kid. And so I kind of wrote this special like in pieces during that two years, but couldn't perform it, obviously. And basically spent four to six months really busting my butt in New York and then on the road for three to four months consistently to get this special in order. Like it was yeah. the shortest period of time from beginning the process to recording a special that I've ever had. Because normally it's, uh, you know, I, I, I was very romantic about it. It'll be ready when it's ready. You know, I, I have time and we'll do it on the road and we'll see what fits together and when it feels right. I didn't do that for this. I'm like, no, I'm doing this and I'm going to get it done. I set a, a date that I'm going to film the special. I set the tour dates. I'm like, whatever happens, it's going to be ready by this point. And I'm not going to wait until I feel like, oh, everything, all the, all the things are, you know, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Like, no, we're, we're not going to yeah. be precious, you know. And that was part of also a, a, a mentality with being a parent. I'm like, I don't have time to be this precious. The most precious thing is my child. Things have to get done. Yeah. And so it was putting a deadline on something and getting it done. And feeling really good about the, the end product and, and knowing that, you know, 20 years of doing this plus at this point means that, like, I have the ability to write uh, when pressured to write. I can write and I can write well. And sometimes I need that pressure to get things done. It is the hardest I've ever worked in a short period of time on stand up. And I think the results did not feel rushed. I look at it. I'm like, this does not feel rushed. This feels like it's together. It's it. I put the work in. I wrote every single day to get those punchlines in order. I, you know, the extended version that's on Bandcamp that people can buy. It's it's 25 minutes longer. I wrote to the point where I had another special in it. You know what I mean? Like 
I'm just like, you know, I, I'm proud of this work. And, you know, even thought about saving that extra 20 minutes and putting it into the next hour. And I thought to myself, no, like, hmm. it's done. I'm done with this material. I've I've done it enough. And now this next hour is a mix of the stuff I had planned to put out earlier that's evergreen because racism is evergreen <laughs> and colonialism is evergreen and and new stuff that ties together and and so you know it, it creatively it was one of the more fulfilling hours because i busted my butt so hard and because i made something out of new experience and out of a very painful frustrating time it really was a glimpse of a, a time period I can both, as someone who knows how stand-up works a little bit, uh, I can see all the hard work uh, that you put in. But I also, you have that unique gift that a lot of comedians, I think, do have, which is you make hard work seem effortless. Um, And so I want to commend you on that. Thank you. I have encountered a thing in recent years, uh, Hari, where people, when something is taken away from them, like road work or whatever else, they lament that they may not be able to do it again. And then when they get to do it again, they're like, ah, fuck. I forgot the shittier parts of this. Yeah, this yeah, is kind yeah. of a drag. I'd rather, particularly for new parents, they want to, yeah. fuck, I was that home. That was defi- definitely there, Vish. Yeah. That was definitely there. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that as a comedian working in this sort of volatile, this is how you make a living. I get it. But it's a volatile time health-wise and... I assume the crowds are good. Everyone's coming out and all that sort of no, stuff. The crowds have been good. I mean, I think if yeah. anything, it has felt when I have a show, I mean, my openers, I think more than anything can speak for me on it. But like, even when I have a show that they say objectively is good, I, I don't enjoy it enough because I'm like, it didn't go. I wanted it to be like, oh, but I wrote these new jokes that worked or I've gotten it's functioning the way I want it to function. Like, there's a part of me that is very much like I'm being impatient about it. I want it to get there sooner because I feel like each one of the times I'm on stage is more valuable than it used to be because mm-hmm. I'm away from my family. I don't get to see my kids. So the patience I had before with stand-up of this is part of a process and you just have to sit through it and wait it out and write, I don't have the same patience. And so you know, I objectively have a tough time looking at a show and being that it's it's good unless it's it's something that feels like I really tied a bunch of things together I've been working on. Yeah. Um, I don't have much room for shows where I'm like, yeah, it was like a B plus or a B minus. Like I don't have the like I it, I want it to be worth the trip away from my kid. But being on the road itself, like physically, it's brutal. Like I just don't have the. I'm doing a lot more shows that are like one night, two nights, and back home. I'm doing yeah. a lot more weekdays. You know, I feel like if I'm going to do weekends, let's wait until it's a bigger tour. I'm doing a lot of cities that I've never done before just to get the practice in. No offense to like, you know, Woodstock, New York or Brattleboro, Vermont. But, you know, that's not a place that I'm normally going to play. But it's a place where I'm going to develop material and figure out this hour. And then when I feel it's right, we're going to do, the, you know, the big tour of all the big cities I love from like, yeah, you know, New York, Boston, Minneapolis, Chicago, you know, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, LA, yeah. you know, all the all the big ones, you know, Atlanta. Um, but this is like part of the process of developing it. And so I'm just kind of doing it piecemeal because yeah. I, I would honestly rather be home until I have something that is ready to take to the bigger stages yeah. and to record. Yeah. And you know, it's a good practice city is Edmonton, Alberta. 
Honestly, when t- literally you saying uh, Edmonton, knowing that you live there, makes me want to perform in Edmonton. So I'm, I'm straight up, <laughs> straight up. Sweet. I would actually, you know, I played it once before, forever ago, and I would play it again. Honestly, knowing you're there, like it does, you know, all I need is a hundred people and a friend, and that's. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. Well, you so, know, I'll I'll make some calls or whatnot. Listen, I'm yeah. mindful of the time. You've alluded to a couple of things about the future, about uh, working on a new special. So I assume that's still in progress. If you want to expand upon that, please do. But I assume that's where you're at. You're working on it, right? I'm working on a new special, and you know, I you know, obviously because of the writer's strike, there's certain creative projects that are on hold right now. I'm still yeah. developing new you know tv and film things and you you that's always a process that's ongoing hope you hope something sticks you yeah. sometimes people ask like you know when are you going to get into tv and film and it's like that's not a question for me to answer yeah. you know th- that you know you're always working on something it's you're hoping that it gets through the development process and people actually want to put it out but as long as people are still interested in making stuff with me i'll, I'll keep i'll keep putting things out there you know it's interesting how many comedians of your stature, like David Cross did a special at the Bell House and it, he put it out himself. Um, you put yours out for, it's for yeah. free on, on YouTube. That worries me a little. I know you mm-hmm. get some revenue from that, but no, it worries this, is me a, too. this is a Netflix, at least if, if that's the benchmark right now or HBO or whatever, this is worthy of that platform, but I assume they... I assume you tried some of these bigger places. It was two things. It was one, I didn't want to wait for an okay from them in order to get their money in order to make it because I was ready to put something out. Two, they're a lot more hesitant now. You know, the market is is different. Like you, there's a a shrinking, right? People are buying each other. There's mergers. It's going back to, you know, there was a golden age, I think, of, of creating and developing things and going out to the market for 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 writers, comedians, actors for the last four or five years, and now it's starting to shrink. You know that golden yeah. age is is ending, and so stand up was great during that that era because it was easy and cheap to produce relatively, and you know people would watch it. Now all of a sudden it doesn't feel the same because you know it doesn't make as as much money as they hoped, and there's fewer places, and you know they're being really tight with who they're giving stuff to, and they're definitely being tight with the speed at which you know yeah. like i would have had to wait a little bit longer and i didn't want to wait so then it's like well then i will do it myself and i will put the money up myself and part of me feels good about it because i have control and i'm like this is my art and i'll put it out but the other part of me is like stand-ups already do everything by themselves yeah and now we're putting up money for specials so you know it's really a mixed bag but the market's change and at this point i would rather have something out and have people see my work that I'm proud of, then have it sit on the shelf forever. It's, uh, this is so- fascinating because you're e- echoing exactly what David Cross said when he was on the show to talk about his latest. But like everyone seems to be on the same page with how fucked up the pages are. So yeah. that's that's interesting itself. So Harry, uh, I I I want to admit that I did not know there was extra footage on the Bandcamp version of the special. So I'm going to buy yes. that. I'm going to buy that right now because I've been watching Thank the you, YouTube dude. special over and over again. But It's um, 20 to 25 minutes. I will say the YouTube thing is definitely a more cohesive and accessible special. Like I'm trying to lull people in in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and at the end, it gets a lot more harder. This special, the gentrification stuff, and on the I call it extended vacation, baby. That's the name of the longer band camp. <laughs> and the, the gentrification stuff is pretty brutal, and I loved it. And I wish we included it, but it just didn't fit. And okay. there's there's a whole bunch of tags and callbacks. It's 
there's there's a lot more creative stuff in there structurally that I didn't include in the special. So if you are a fan of mine, the album version on Bandcamp, I, I think you'll really like it, Vish. And I'd love to hear what you think after you hear it. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, as soon as we're done here, I'm gonna pick that up. If people want to learn more about you, your tour dates, the stuff we've been talking about, uh, Harry, where would you like to send them using their telephones and computers and whatnot? Obviously, at Hari Kundabolu at all the social medias. I'm using Instagram more nowadays, and I'm on TikTok, even though it just feels weird for a man my age to be on TikTok. <laughs> um, and, you know, YouTube, Vacation Baby, please watch it. Pass it around. It's free. More than anything, I just want people to see it, to so pass it to your friends, share it on the socials. And yeah. uh, again, if you go to Bandcamp, you can get all my albums, but the new one, Extended Vacation Baby, you know, if you want to support my work and if you want to hear more comedy from that special, go there. And no pressure. I'm just the father of a small child, but no pressure. <laughs> no, I, I will link to all of these things. Uh, no problem there, Harry. I encourage everyone to buy things and watch things. And I'll be touring, Vish. I'm touring You'll be all touring. Of June. I'll be touring in the fall and I'll find my way to Edmonton. I'll figure it out. In Toronto, as we're speaking, you're in Toronto June 29th, I want to say, That's off the right. top of my two, head. Yeah. Two shows at the Comedy Bar in Danforth. So. I miss I miss the Comedy Bar. I miss Toronto. But that's that's another time. We can talk about that later. Hari, normally, as you may recall, uh, I would, I'd like to go out on tracks by musicians, by comedians. You have a new record, a new special. If we could go out on something from Vacation Baby to give people a little bit of a flavor of what yeah. the special is about, can you think of something that makes sense? Uh, right now let's do the one this is a joke that i don't think i realize how much people would like it when people seem to really like it and i and i've actually grown to love it even more the bit about my kid's first nightmare yeah <laughs> let's sorry. do that bit my kid's first nightmare my mom's response to it that whole sequence yeah <laughs> sorry that's very funny you're i will say i appreciate your parenting humor can be a little hack. You've done it beautifully. It's so brilliant Thank you very and much. so you. relatable. Okay, so this is a bit about uh, Hari's beautiful child uh, joining us on planet Earth and instantly yeah, not really enjoying themselves that much. That's a way of putting it, maybe. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head. I think it's a lot more succinct. We'll go to that now. Uh, Hari, it's always a, a pleasure to speak with you. It's been too long for me, so thank you so much for this, and It'll I wish be. you the best luck Absolutely. in the future, and I hope we talk soon. Yeah, definitely, man. Good to see you, man. Me and my partner have had very different experiences being parents, and it was clear it was going to be different from day one. I remember she was holding the baby in her arms, and she was crying, and she looked at the baby, and then she looked at me, and she said, this is the greatest thing I've ever created. And I think she wanted me to say me too, but the thing is, I have a Netflix special, and it's so good. Like, from beginning to end. Joe, 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 wonderful the whole way through, and... I just met this kid. The jury's out. People have called my child a, a COVID baby, which is inaccurate because he was not conceived during COVID. If you must know, he's a Honolulu Ritz-Carlton vacation baby. The pandemic had nothing to do with it. He was conceived as a result of 200,000 Delta Sky Miles. And four Mai Tais. <laughs> so I think it's fair to assume that the child was unplanned. It was an unplanned pregnancy, and we had a choice to make, and I'm very grateful that we had a choice. What we didn't have a choice in is that we were going to be pregnant during a global pandemic. 
Do you realize how weird that is? To be pregnant during a global pandemic, there's death around you, despair, no hope, and you bring a child into that? Having a child during a global pandemic is like buying real estate in Pompeii as Mount Vesuvius is erupting. (laughs) Now, a little bit about that failed punchline. Um... (laughs) When I originally wrote the joke, the punchline was, it's like buying real estate in Ukraine as the Russians invaded, right? And your reaction is appropriate. It's a comedic concept known as too soon. I understood that. I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go to 79 AD, destruction of Pompeii by Mount Vesuvius, discovered a new comedic concept called too long ago. So I'm uh, looking for a tragedy in the sweet spot. (laughs) Haven't quite found it yet, but hopefully before the end of the night I can find a horrific event to use as a metaphor that we can all laugh at together as a family. (laughs) Nine hours after my child was born, he started twitching and I got nervous. And I asked a nurse what was going on and he's like, don't worry about it. He's just having a nightmare. A nightmare? He's nine hours old. What on earth has happened during the first nine hours? What was he, like, uh, ripped out of the only place he knew his home and thrown into a land of bright lights and giants with no guarantees of food, safety, or shelter, with no real understanding of why he exists? And to be perfectly honest, the giants that run the show, they don't know why they exist either. There's hamsters running around a wheel, and all they know for sure is that they're cogs in capitalism, a machine they cannot destroy. So what are you twitching about? The nightmare is just beginning. My mother told me that she heard that when babies that small have nightmares, it's because their soul is remembering its previous life. And I don't know why she told me this. Why are you telling me that my son is possessed by a spirit with PTSD? So my child's just like, my wife, where's my wife? I'm a a baby, when did this happen? What'd I miss? Did Vesuvius explode? (laughs) Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Man, that is a funny, funny album and special, Vacation Baby. Thank you so much to Hari for being back on the show to talk about it. 
Love talking to Hari, as you can tell. We have an affinity for one another, it seems. Years of speaking to one another. This is, I think, his third time on this show. Thank you so much, Hari. Thank you so much to all of you listening to this uh, episode. This is the 785th episode of Creative Control, if you're trying to keep track at home, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available just about wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit bishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control currently on Facebook. You can also follow the show currently on Twitter, at Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter or on Instagram, at Kana. If you're hearing this and you have an invite for that uh, new thing, Blue Sky, and want to send me one, that would be lovely. I just want to see what uh, if that's better. It's started by the other guy, the same guy who started Twitter, isn't it? I'm a bit confused. But anyway, if you got one, please add me to your list of recipients for the Blue Sky thing. If you don't want to, that's fine. I'm just putting it out there at the end of the show. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this donor-driven podcast. $6 American or more a month grants you access to exclusive content, plus you get the episodes uh, earlier than everybody else does. Uh, I still have some Creative Control t-shirts in the uh, burgundy or maroon. I never know the difference anymore. Anymore? Maybe I never did. Uh, I got that design and then the yellow t-shirts in various sizes still, although I'm running low on many of them. Anyway, if you want any of these perks and also just want to support this show financially because you like it and hope that it doesn't go away because I can't afford to do it anymore, please go to patreon.com slash creative control. I, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Speaking of thanks, thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. All wonderful independent businesses who provide in-kind support for this show. Thanks to my old friend Jim Guthrie for uh, uh, providing me with some music that I uh, use sometimes on the show. You can learn more about Jim at his uh, website there, jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Hari Kandabulu, one of the greatest stand-up comedians working today and a very thoughtful and lovely guy who I adore. I hope you enjoyed this episode and this conversation. Uh, if you're new to Hari's work, check it out. If you're familiar with it uh, but didn't know who, don't know who I am, hello, I'm Bish. Uh, Hari's been on the show a few times. We're, we're friendly. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast or follow it, these sorts of things, and tell your friends about it too to help spread the word. All right, I'm going to go. I will talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks again. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.